Hey everybody, on this episode of 10,000 Feet, we talk with frequent contributor and CIO Jim Vandermeer about a topic we get asked about a lot, how to validate your idea before spending tons of money. Jim introduces the idea of a riskiest assumption test, or RAT, instead of jumping right into building a minimum viable product, known as the MVP. Jim gives some great examples of classic assumption tests on this episode that may give you some useful ideas. Enjoy. So I think that one of the problems with the MVP is the term minimal. And so people tend to think of it's a stripped down, it's the it's our lowest cost of entry. But if you look at the lean startup literature, I was reminded of something that Eric Eric Reese wrote in the Lean Startup is an MVP is that version of a new product which allows a team to collect the maximum amount of validated learning about customers with the least effort. One of the challenges that we have with these our established enterprise brands is that in the era of five-star ratings, minimal still has to be really, really good. Which isn't in fact minimal at all. Right. And so when you have these pressures as a, as a market leader, and, and we're saying that you have to do an MVP, but you're also recognizing that the success of your product is going to be based on its Amazon ratings, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. then minimal takes on a new meaning. So as opposed to a pure play digital product where you're developing a mobile app or a, a web service, that um, minimal can be something different um, because the rebranding, relaunch, and the iteration is much simpler than when you're manufacturing something in China. and have a cap, significant capital investment in tooling and product. So Jim, what you're describing doesn't sound like an MVP at all. It sounds much more like a version 1.0, a fully polished released product. Yes. Is there an MVP that should have come before that? Is that a cart before the horse situation? And that's why we talk about the RAT, the riskiest assumption test. Yeah, say more. So the, the, the RAT, as the risk assumption test is identifying what is the hypothesis that if proven false would put the product at risk. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And so, um, so for example, um, we have one client that they were wondering if mm -hmm. um, people would actually want to get the consumables for their product online and would they order it through the mobile app. And, and so they have a product that every once in a while has to have fulfillment of a consumable device, a filter in this case. And they were wondering, would people actually order the filter um, when the product gets, tells them that they're at a certain point in the life cycle of the filter? So they're testing whether the product's saying, give me a new filter, is yeah. motivation enough for the customer to buy a new filter. Right. But in order to test that, historically, you'd say, well, we have to completely integrate that with our back end e-commerce platform right to get got, the order to get the order through so what they did is they put the the button in the app sent an email to an intern the intern would actually go out to the warehouse get the part and ship that to the customer so what they were doing is with a low-cost experiment they were validating that this particular activity would be something that consumers would value and then they also were able to learn through that at what stage in the notification process and what notifications and is it right right do you do people actually buy it after the product has expired when it's fully consumed or do they buy it in advance when a notification pops up but instead of doing the full integration on the back end they were able to do a test 
um, through and validate that hypothesis at low cost. So then when they make their investment, they make an investment fully informed in how they know their users are using this function or will likely use it. Yes. And so, um, so that's, that is the value of the, of the RAT process, is that there's an economic opportunity or there's a process opportunity, that there's, a, there's something that, that you believe to be true. And sometimes those things are proven false really quickly through a design exercise. Right. We, right. Have, we have done RAT validation in one afternoon in some cases because someone said, yeah, people want to engage in our product in this way and they're going to... And, and we realized, no, they actually don't want to engage with your product that way. You can't create a compelling experience around this particular activity. Um, because people who are very close to products are oftentimes too Blinded. close. Right, right. Yeah, they see what they want to see in their product. So Jim, we, we jumped in right in the middle. I want to I wanna try and go back to before the product. Is there a, a rat situation where um, we're trying to evaluate whether or not we should even build something? Yes. Yeah, is there enough value in this um, effort? Is, there, is the problem big enough to solve? Right, right. So is this a problem that, that warrants the, taking on the complexity mm -hmm. of, of adding, and we run into these problems a lot in the IoT space specifically, because we're asking a consumer to take on digital complexity, potentially security risk, and a software lifecycle management for the sake of some perceived benefit of the connected product. Right, right. And sometimes those three things you just listed are really expensive things that change the course of the business. I mean, right. And and you're now you're also putting an onus on the consumer. So to move beyond the hobbyist market, would a general would a general consumer get value from this? And you know, you, you look at um, you know smart cleaning products. You mm -hmm. look at uh, home security products. You think about um, IoT and certain industrial applications, and the, some of the very first questions that come up are: Does there enough value here to warrant the additional investment? So, how do we answer that question without actually building it? So, we can create uh, tabletop exercises. We can create design documents. We can create mockups, and then ask people to interact with it and do guided research. And so a subtle shift in, in the MVP model versus the RAT model is that you learn before you build with a RAT. Mm -hmm. With an MVP, you build to learn. And, and so the, the cycle is, you know, we, um, we build, we, we learn in an MVP, but in um, a RAT, we learn and then we build. So does one lead naturally to the other? Do we rat and then we MVP? Or yes, are they, okay. the two are complementary, absolutely complementary. But again, recognizing that the bar is very, very high. Um, so whether the product, the experience is at risk and what can you easily test to do that validation early in the process? And then that could lead into building the MVP, recognizing that for these physical product companies, these legacy manufacturers, that an MVP is actually a version one of the product that has to be commercially successful and, and have enough success in the market that your channel 
your um, brand promise, and that the physical product itself is um, desirable. Mm -hmm. So Jim, sometimes in the IoT space, do you run into this? The reason we need to build it is because our competitors are building it. I just had that conversation this, this morning with a customer. So how do you validate that? They're, so they're saying that our competition is doing something and they're getting ahead of us and it creates a, a, a sense of urgency mm -hmm. because the, the company that might be the market leader may be at risk of digital uh, disruption. And so you've right. got a, a digital innovator coming in and saying that, you know what, we're going to create X, this new product that does this really cool thing and that's going to disrupt our market. Right. And, right. and so the incumbent then is faced with um, a really great question about what they should build to compete against that perceived threat. Mm -hmm. And the problem that most incumbents have is that they have huge resources, but the innovative product is likely going to be very, very small at the beginning. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so how do you validate that this new experience or this new product or this new service is going to have value in the market? And so it's, uh, we did a project um, for uh, Caterpillar where we went out and we prototyped in conjunction with some of their key channel partners and key customers. And we were building mock-ups and saying, if we did it this way, would you find value in it? And we were able to rapidly iterate right, right. through, through a, a very stripped down asset, but to identify, is this experience valuable to you? And we were able to determine that some things were not, and some things absolutely were. So through that iteration, you end up with a, a sort of mock-up that you feel like the customers are saying, yes, if you gave me this, I would, I would like it. Yes. That then naturally leads to an MVP process. Does that give us a higher likelihood that the customer will actually like it when we build it? Because yes. sometimes what I think I want isn't what I want. Right. And that's the avoiding the perceptional bias of the builder. Mm -hmm. um, and which might be the riskiest assumption. That, right. that the perceptional bias of the builder is that this is something that is valuable to the market. And, and how do I then validate that and test this hypothesis? How do I construct an experiment? To confirm that. To confirm that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A, a true experiment that allows for the possibility that the answer is no. Because we're not trying to simply validate our hypothesis. We're trying to test our hypothesis. That's a, that's a subtle nuance, but it's important. Absolutely. I can't help but think as, as consultants, um, there's an a aspect of concern there. So what we're really saying is, give me some money and I'll confirm for you or tell you straight that this thing you want to do isn't going to work. Yes. Right? Like part of what we're doing is before you spend a million dollars with us. Right. Before you spend a million dollars, spend 10000 and we'll tell you if it's a good idea or not. Or spend 100000 and we'll validate the idea. Yes. That's exactly what we do. Yeah, yeah, that's great. <laughs> and and because I don't want to build products that nobody wants to use. Neither do your clients, right? Right. And and so as consultants, um, we have to say that our goal is the customer's success, not in taking money to to build something that's a bad idea. Right. Right. 
Which is why I asked you about, well, our competitors are doing it. Is there a case where it is inherently a good idea because that's what everyone else is doing? So, or is that fool's logic? So you may choose to be a fast follower and say, we're going to strategically choose to be the fast follower because we're going to allow the market to test whether these are good ideas or not. And we know because we have the uh, brand and we have the scale and we have the product knowledge that we can be a fast follower and we can then change hmm. and do something better than our competition and learn from their mistakes. And I, so that's a willful choice of strategy to be a fast follower. Um, so you look at certain product segments and there are, are niche companies that have introduced products and then you've seen the dominant brand come in second. Mm -hmm. Take for example, hybrid vehicles. You know, um, there's a real tension in the world right now about can Tesla scale or will other companies learn from what Tesla has done and replicate the process at scale and make Tesla functionally irrelevant in the automotive market. And probably some of the big players in the auto industry are thinking exactly that. Tesla paved the way. They sort of proofed out the idea of driverless cars and electric engines and that sort of- High capacity batteries and charging stations. And now GM has the benefit of all of that experience and knowledge and the scale that Tesla has to build to be able to manufacture cars much more quickly in the Tesla model. Yes. Sounds like cheating. Um, sounds like competition. Sure. Yeah. So is the value of being first to market? Um, there were there were MP3 players before there was the iPod. Right. Yeah. Uh, the iPod wasn't the first MP3 player. It was just the one that got it all right. right? And and they also because they were in a place where they were able to create a business model to go along with it. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the other part of this is that there's a business model test that you can t that you can execute as a riskiest assumption test as well. Is there a business model that we have to support through this new innovation that is going to change or create a new value proposition uh, in the market? Right. So, Jim, how would I even know what my riskiest assumption to test is? How, how would I get there? So, um, one of the the best tools for that is to, is using a business model canvas. And in the business model canvas, you are writing down the state of the current market. You're writing down what our value proposition is. Mm -hmm. You're talking about the channel. Um, you're talking about the competition. You're talking about risks. And in the business model canvas, as you work through that, you're able to pretty quickly tease out, here's the three or four things that have to be true for this to be successful. And then you create um, the hypothesis related to those and say, well, how would I would test these things? Right. How would I do an experiment? What? Who do I need to talk to to see if this is actually something that's valuable or not? Um, and and uh, one of the hypotheses might be, can we create a service around this that people will consume mm -hmm. because maybe we've always sold our product as a discrete product sale and now we're going to do it as a service. Sure. You know, are people willing to buy my product as a service? Um, so you might have three or four rats in yes. the scenario you just defined and you test those sequentially all they can at the be same time? They can be tested concurrently. Mm -hmm. um, I would say it depends on the, on the dependence between them. Um, but 
it also depends on uh, the team because you might say we're going to, why would we do rat test number four if rat test number one is going to be the one that's going to validate or invalidate the entire program? Oh, sure. So you might have the riskiest of your riskiest <laughs> assumptions and say, well, if this one is not true, then nothing else matters. Right. Mm -hmm. And you can iterate very quickly through these, these experiments and, and say, well, if this experiment is, pr is proven true or false, then I have a next hypothesis. Sure. And, and that also then creates a, a strategic framework for the product because this is what we're now trying to achieve. Great. Okay. I gotta, I gotta, I gotta go off to the left or right. I gotta take a little detour here for a second. Am I the only one bothered by rat? Like no one thinks, oh, rats, they're so cute and valuable to business. No one thinks that. I, that's one of the reasons I love the term because the, um, the moniker itself, uh, is so memorable. Okay. And right. so I, and because there are so many acronyms in our industry, um, I at Herman Miller, for example, they they got tired of the term MVP, and so instead of they said, "Why should we do anything minimally? We want the maximum." Also, an want, M. Yeah. Why do we want? Um, uh, why do we want the viable? Because when we talk about something being viable, it's on life support, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so we want valuable. And they said, everyone's talking about the product, but we want to talk about an experience. So they would talk about the maximally valuable, maximum valuable experience they could create. The, or the MVE. The MVE. Or they might talk about the maximum achievable experience, given the constraints that they were facing. So we get caught up in these acronyms and they take on meaning mm -hmm. in some cases outside of the definition and the, and the acronym itself. But the RAT is very memorable. Um, and it also is kind of fun to, to, to drop that in a meeting, say, well, before we do this, before we go forward on this development project, we need to do a rat. And immediately it, it gets attention. I can see that. And I can see that. Not all positive attention, I imagine. Well, um, uh, Greg, who is a, uh, a senior executive at Bissell, says that they now have the rat as part of every one of their product development discussions. Hmm. And the um, and so that has become part of their 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 definitional standard. And so they they will thoughtfully include that as part of their process now. And so I think that because it is a it's a it uh, it might not be warm and fuzzy. It might not be um, you know as you said rats don't have a lot of positive, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. um, it works for us. So always. Every new engagement, you talk through what we're going to do, and one of the things that you're asking yourself and you're talking to your clients about is, what's your riskiest assumption? How are we validating that? I absolutely will bring that up. And there are enough products in the junkyards of digital development, <laughs> things that were highly anticipated that people don't use. And so the, the fact is that I could say to you, how many apps do you have on your phone that you loaded and you used once or twice and then you never use them again? Most. Yeah. And how many uh, smart home products or smart products do you have that you purchased thinking you were going to get a certain amount of value from it and you didn't maintain it? Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and so, so there are 
places of resonance that people will have and that you don't want your product to do that. Right, right. And so if you don't want your product to do that, then what can we test quickly that will enable you to have a product that people will engage in, be passionate about, give a five-star rating, Mm-hmm. And um, and create a strong economic opportunity for you. So does that create a, a sense of obligation for you, Jim? So we validated this. Uh, we went through this rat process. We determined that the marketplace wanted the product we developed. Now we developed it, and it still doesn't get five star ratings, and nobody actually wanted it. Do you then have this sense of ownership in that decision? Or do, is there a process by which we re-examine our assumptions along the way? We absolutely re-examine our assumptions along the way. Um, we have to learn from those early stage development efforts. And that's where the MVP then comes to play. That we are going to learn and then we're going to iterate. Mm-hmm. And then we're so the get, one leads to the other. So we create a loop and we constantly are learning. And that's where the data is so important. That the data that we collect about the use of an application the data we collect from the device, if it's a smart connected device, is that it might be that your version one is something that you create to collect data. Oh, sure. To inform your future versions. To inform your future versions. Mm-hmm. And you're, you are creating an, MV, an MVP, you're creating a version one to learn so that you can be successful the next time. But that's then creating a product roadmap. Right. And, and so, and, and the other interesting part is that there are now analytics you can look at. Uh, we did a project for, with one client where we ran analytics against all of their competitors in the public marketplaces to identify what keywords were associated with five-star versus one-star ratings. Huh. And so now we're using data to inform what features should be at the top of the list in order to get highly positive ratings. Right, right. And what features do we apps because it's actually more important to not get one stars than it is to get five stars. Because a one star will drag you down. It's more damaging. And more damaging mm-hmm. just from the way the averages work. Right. So so there's uh, what do we need to avoid doing to keep from getting one star products? Just make a better product. That's all. It's easy. <laughs> That's all. <laughs> so, Jim, can we talk about how this applies or if this applies outside of durable goods and connected products? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So there's um, uh, service offerings. Um, we have um, a client who's in the transportation industry. Mm-hmm. And they had an idea, though, for a service offering. And... Um, and what we what we suggested is before you go into that conversation about your service offering, let's just talk to customers. Mm-hmm. And this is a, a, a and, and I had this in a healthcare situation as well that the more people know, the more they assume they know. Right. Right. And so I call this, how do we avoid smart people mistakes? Mm-hmm. And um, it just requires a gentle nudge. But how many times have we worked on projects where they haven't talked to customers early in the, early in the, the development process? All the time. 
And so this could be around a service mm-hmm. offering. This could be around a new website. This could be around a e-commerce platform. And the, the customer, our customer, the product owner company, assumes they know everything they need to know to create a great customer experience. Oh, right. I, I think that's even, that's the standard. They approach the project presuming they already know what they want. Right. They already understand the customer and the customer's need. That's why they're talking to you. That's why they're talking to a consulting firm. And so I think in that moment to say, have you validated this? And with um, not not a, um, in the sense of a, uh, a small group, a, a focus group, mm-hmm. but have you gone out and observed people solving this problem in the wild? that you're trying to address and um, can we inform an understanding of the economic value quickly right. uh, before we start building so have it just be a little more learning mm-hmm. and i think that that's mm-hmm. something that any web developer any mobile app developer because um are you are you really thinking that no one has solved this problem before because they're they're solving the problem manually and what you're fighting against isn't another product you're fighting against the status quo right and if there's yeah. not enough pain in the status quo to take on your product and persistently use it then it's likely to not be adopted at scale no matter how great it is yes because you're competing with the status quo you're competing with good enough mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. fascinating so do you use this to pick what restaurant you're going to what you're going to have for lunch no no. I don't. <laughs> I, I tend to not use a lot of risk when I'm picking what I'm having for lunch. So, um, no, I, I tend to, to avoid rats for lunch. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I want to circle back around and just try and sum some of this up. So I use a riskiest assumption test. Yes. To validate that the thing we think is true really is true. Yes that informs the way we approach building our minimally viable product. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the end, then, we get a product that we feel more confident resonates with the customer. So that, uh, hmm, no, we get a product that resonates with the customer more strongly. That's what we get, right? Yes. We feel more confident about it, too. Is the process longer? Is the process no, actually, more elaborate? The process is actually faster. Great. That's one of the interesting side effects because um, in a traditional agile development process, you don't get the feedback until you have the build. You don't get the feedback until you have high fidelity design artifacts. And so in the RAT, you create something with the minimal, um, minimally necessary to validate a hypothesis. So it's only one small piece of the total product or service. So you get feedback a whole lot earlier because you you're getting f- feedback off that tiny little piece. You're, you're getting validated learning mm-hmm. early in the process, um, which then can inform the design process. Mm-hmm. And um, given that oftentimes the things that are riskiest are the things that are hardest to design and to build, um, you are shaving a considerable amount of time from the development, uh, time and budget. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, because you're giving more confidence and certainty to the design team and to the development team. 
So it actually is faster this way. So we hopped right into the subject at hand today, Andrew, and uh, didn't get introductions. So who are you? Ah, oh, geez, I don't know. <laughs> um, I, I'm Andrew Powell. I, 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 I work for your company, Jim. You should know who I am. Um, yeah, I, I manage our application development practices. That's what I do. That's what you do. And Andrew, you have some of the most fascinating hobbies of anyone I know here at OST. So what are some of the things you do in your, in your side gigs? Um, what do I do in my free time? Uh, before I cover what I do in my free time, Jim, I just want to say uh, thank you for acknowledging my fifth anniversary, which happens this weekend. <laughs> uh, yes, I've been at OSC for five years. Um, in my free time, I do everything, Jim. Uh, you know, Laura and I were talking about this earlier today. Uh, I think I'm an entertainer. That's what I am in my free time. I do magic and I produce shows and I write plays and I write books and I think that's everything. You do comedy. I do do comedy. Yep. Yeah. Yep. I do some stand up and some improv mostly as characters. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think that, I think that's it. My wife owns a comedy club. I should explain. It's just down the street from OST. It's called the comedy project. They opened a few months ago. So, so, um, I love the fact that you are a person of diverse interests and you bring that energy into the application development team as well as into your personal life. And one of the things that we do in this podcast is because OST is in an old game company is we ask newcomers to the podcast, what is their favorite game and why? Oh boy. What is my favorite game and why? And it doesn't have to be a wooden board game. Um, I'm going to answer the question, but before I do, can I tell you a story, Jim? Can I tell you a story about this building we're in? Because I sure. think it relates. It's where my mind went when you said this. When I was a, a wee tot, when I was a young boy growing up in Grand Rapids, Michigan, we used to drive through downtown Grand Rapids, and there was that giant chess piece on the side of the Drukey Games factory. Yes, the night. Yeah, and I, um, I used to tell my parents that when I grew up, I was going to work there because I wanted to make games. I, I make games too. I'm a game hobbyist. And uh, it's ironic to me as I think through my five years at OST that I am in fact working there at that building <laughs> I fantastic. wanted to work at. Not, not the same building or not the same business, but I'm, I'm working there. Um, what's my favorite game? That's the real question you asked. That's uh, that's tough. I'd probably say my favorite game is poker. And I feel bad saying that because do I like poker best just because I've spent so much time playing poker? One of my hobbies is that I used to play poker semi-professionally. <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know. But I do love poker. I love poker because there's an aspect of poker that is most definitely luck. But there's an aspect of poker that is skill. And anyone who plays poker can get better at poker just by playing more poker. But also knowing people better, knowing who you're playing with better, and understanding the inner dynamics of human communication make you a better poker player. So mm-hmm. it covers the full gamut of human, human experience in a way that is meaningful to me, even though that sounds so hokey now that I've said it. Well, and you are also able to put that to good use because every year on our March Madness party, you are actively engaged at one of the poker tables that we have going on upstairs. That's true. I did deal poker for uh, for eight hours straight last, <laughs> last March and the March before that. So, so. all right. Well, thank you. Uh, this has been a good day today. So, enjoy thanks, it. Jim.
OST, changing how the world connects together. For more information, go to ostusa.com slash podcast.